Hello, and welcome to What the Kids Were Watching, a podcast about the weird, wonderful, and terrible babysitter movies of our youth. My name is Sada. With me is Raphael. Hello, Raf. Hello, Sada. And today we are going to be talking about a movie that played in constant rotation on HBO when we were young, The Golden Child. So, yes, uh, Problem Child was movie... Go- Golden Child, please. I don't want to talk about Problem Child ever. <laughs> so, The Golden Child starring Eddie Murphy, which some people probably feel like they don't ever want to talk about it again. And I respect that. But it was uh, released uh, in December of... Uh... 1986. It was a Christmas movie. I mean, not a Christmas movie like Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but released around Christmas time. And there's snow in it. It makes sense. And in fact, starts with snow. But we're going to be going full disclosure on all of our podcasts will be spoilers, obviously. So many spoilers, but you've got you've had like 30 something years to see this movie. So. So the story is following Eddie Murphy as Chandler Jarrell who is a, how would we describe him? He describes himself as a finder of lost children. Who employs him? Who pays him? Unclear. But he finds lost kids, and that's what he does for a living. And when Charles Dance as a... Sadonose! Is an evil all-around man and that's well-tailored and goes around the world with his uh, evil misfits to steal a small Tibetan child and of a temple. And uh, so he's evil, clearly. And it's basically Chandler's job to save this child because, as the female love interest tells him, he is the chosen one. As the movie poster tells him, he is the chosen one. Basically, Chandler is like the protagonist in a bad YA novel. Everything happens to him, but not by him. He is constantly told he is the chosen one, and then he'll make a terrible joke and laugh that great Eddie Murphy laugh about it. We didn't know at the time. I mean, I think my first experience was like HBO and didn't think about the context of it because he was just Eddie Murphy. And at that time, got to realize he was the greatest person in the universe for that particular mid-80s period. It was his first big movie after uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which was the biggest movie of 1984. And so everyone was excited about what he was going to do next. In fact, Raph, I believe you told me that The Golden Child was created to sort of introduce Eddie Murphy as an Indiana Jones-style character. The project had been around before him, but I think what they did was they wanted to put him into something. Uh, in fact, weirdly enough, Ghostbusters, which came out same year as Beverly Hills Cop, they wanted to put him in as Winston Stedmore, but that didn't line up because of the speed of the production. And by the end of the year, Eddie Murphy was the biggest thing since anything. And they were like, we want to put him at Paramount, who he was working with, was like, we want to put him in something. He almost ended up in Star Trek Four because he was a avowed Trekkie. And then... What? I didn't know Eddie Murphy was a Trekkie. That's totally, awesome. He wanted to be in it. And they had the idea of, we're going to go back in time. And then the idea is that modern day Eddie Murphy sees them come back in time and then becomes their sidekick in the movie. And as the heads of Paramount, I think that was Barry Diller, but don't quote me on that, basically went we're not going to mix together our two favorite things. So okay. they found a project for him, which was this. Got it. Cool, cool, cool. So Ralph asked me the other day, when was the first time you saw this movie? Do you remember it? I have seen this movie so many times. I can't really remember the first time I saw it. What I do remember was sitting in the movie theater and seeing the teaser trailer. And it opens in Nepal and it's snowy. And it's very cold. You're like in this really dense snow globe and there's this like deep voiceover. I tried to find it on YouTube. I was unsuccessful. Then suddenly you see Eddie Murphy in all these coats and he's yelling about how cold he is. And everybody in the theater broke out laughing. And what that said to me was, this is a funny person. You should laugh at his jokes. This movie's gonna be wacky. And when I was growing up, we 
we, you know, things were kind of rough for us. I grew up single parent family, three kids. My mom was a teacher, so we did struggle, but we had cable. And my mother would tape movies from cable and we would just watch them over and over. And the thing about the golden child, well, first of all, the word child is in the title. So it's easy to assume that this movie is appropriate for kids. It was PG-13. Um, there's really, there's no sex in it. I mean, there are a lot of sexual references, but no one gets naked. The violence is, there is violence, but it's cartoonish. You know, there's blood, but like, I don't think anyone gets decapitated. So it's not, on the surface, I can see how it's not inappropriate for kids. This movie is not for children. I had no business watching this over and over again, especially since Star Wars wasn't allowed in my house. So how how did that go? Is it just like, I know you watched it the first time or two, but then... Did it become the, let's put it on? What, what prompted we, you to see it? We watched it over and over again. We, I'm assuming my brother and sister were there too. For all I know, it was just me and Eddie Murphy. I watched it a lot because it was funny. But it was funny in that way that I was sort of told was funny. You know, he keeps making jokes. He laughs at his own jokes. And, you know, when you're a kid, sometimes you're still figuring things out. You're still figuring out, like, grown-up humor. And so I just went along for the ride and thought, well, he's funny. He's laughing at it. Everybody likes him. He's the chosen one. So this is a funny movie, and the jokes are funny. And they're not. I mean, revisiting... Well, I mean, some of them are, but revisiting it... The thing about Eddie Murphy's character is that he takes up so much room that there's barely room for any other characters in the movie. He's all, I mean, his jokes are just like this giant jingling costume around him as he walks through scenery and people just sort of watch him and blink. There are some other characters who get in some good lines or a good fart joke or two, but really it's a—it's uh, his show. And I don't know if that works. The movie was, I think, his first real vanity project because until Beverly Hills Cop, he was the young guy coming into these movies. And Beverly Hills Cop was where everyone finally discovered him as the lead. And here was where you can see that he's sort of doing what he wants to in relation to the project, and everything around it is basically inflating him. And that's what he would do in a lot of his projects from here on out. Even the, the title, the song at the opening credits is, was it the... Oh my God, can we talk about the opening credits for a second? Okay, first of all... The very beginning of this movie takes forever, I think. You're in Nepal, the, the kid gets kidnapped. I don't know if we just didn't record that part on HBO when I was growing up, or if I would just fast forward it, but that whole part feels very, it doesn't have that familiarity that the rest of the movie has, probably because I thought it was super boring and never spent time with it. And then after that, we jump immediately into the credits. The song that's playing is by uh, Anne from Heart. I should know her last name. Hi there, her last name is Wilson. It's Anne Wilson from Heart, and now I will never forget it. But it's called The Best Man in the World. And the chorus is literally, you're the best man in the world. And you're being told this as an audience member, as Eddie Murphy comes up to a dude at a magazine stand who's reading a magazine called Chunky Asses, and Eddie Murphy makes fun of him. And I don't know if that's just supposed to be super deep irony or if the movie is like oblivious, but having being, t being told that this dude is the best the best man in the world as he's making fun of someone else and referencing uh, what's supposed to be this gross, funny porno. Uh, again, this movie is supposedly for children. That's, that's just a thing that's going on there. And that's sort of the problem with his character's relationship with everybody else. He's always deflating everything in the universe. Everyone is talking about how serious things are and then the mm -hmm. joke is supposed to be, mm -hmm. ah, ha, ha, this is not a big deal. I'm laughing it off. Mm -hmm. But it also 
prevents us from ever finding anything to be a threat. Yeah. I get the whole, you know, this this funny guy is in this super serious situation. It's wacky. I, I understand that premise, and sometimes it works. And in this movie, I think, I don't know, it just it feels so forced. And ultimately, it's a patchwork quilt of different genres. And they don't always work together. Sometimes it's action. Sometimes it's supernatural. Sometimes it's very briefly, it's crime procedural. I know we're jumping ahead into the plot, but there's this one moment where he's coming back from Nepal and Sado Nomspa. God, I want to get at that character in a second. But so he says, uh, Sado Nomspa tries to take the Ajanti dagger back from Chandler, who tells him, if I get arrested, the dagger is going to be impounded and you're not going to get a hold of it until after the trial, which is going to be forever. And it's a really smart thing to say. And I think that this movie would have been so much more interesting if he hadn't just been like a laugh factory, if he had actually been a smart cop or a smart uh, finder of lost children, just something to make his character more nuanced, something more than just he has this apartment with an Elvis Presley poster on the wall. I don't understand that. I'd like to hear some uh, some input as to why that became a creative decision. Well, what's interesting about who directed the movie, his name's Michael Ritchie. He passed away a few years ago. We would best know him as a director of Bad News Bears, mm. uh, The Candidate, Downhill Racer, Semi Tough, a lot of really great 70s movies. Then once he, when he came into the 80s, he was doing stuff like Survivors, Wildcats, mm. um, and the movie that was a big hit right before this one, Fletch. Mm. And I think that what they were wanting to do was, oh, he did Fletch where an actor's funny while he's going through a mystery. Mm -hmm. And I think that that key moment that works is very much in a way that Fletch worked. But... The difference is that Chevy Chase can play a straight man. And but I mean, that was part of the charm of that movie. I'm not sure that just cracking jokes through this movie is what's working. I don't know. I feel well, like I'm... Oh, I don't think it works at all, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's funny how you said as a kid you accept anything. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I just accepted you could put these tones together and just go, I guess that's the way it is. And the other, the other thing is that I think this movie has the potential to be really an exciting adventure movie. Like, uh, this is really dating myself, but when I was a kid, one of my favorite things was this one episode of Sesame Street where they went to China and another one where they went to Hawaii. And it was like, it brought all the fun of the characters into a new and exciting place. And just it was, it was just like this delicious fusion of fun and interesting and cultures, you know, as a kid, I, I certainly, I still have never been uh, to China. And I remember, like, I learned so much. It was really interesting. And this movie sort of misses that opportunity of bringing the fun to the seriousness. I feel like maybe we should go over the plot of this movie a little bit, too. I'm not sure if Do we? Covered it. <laughs> Do we really? Because it's, even rewatching it, I keep, like, they don't even, there's never a point in the movie they even explain why Chandler's the chosen one. No, he's just told because he is, it's it's a man who is no angel. Well, what is it about him that's, like, so bad other than, you know, he sort of harasses people when they're trying to buy porn? Um He's just, you know, he he's he meets the female lead, who is phenomenal. I want to talk about her in a second. He meets her while he's playing basketball with a bunch of kids. How is he no angel? He's not that terrible. It's that sort of, but that's when I say a vanity project, when a star's mm -hmm. like, I want to do this, but this, and this. And it's not a character as much as a bunch of random traits that make them look good. Yeah, and then we're told, rather than shown, who he is and what we should think about him. But a character that I agree is actually far more interesting than she's allowed to be as Charlotte Lewis as uh, Lanky. 
I love her. First of all, talk about the perfect straight foil to Eddie Murphy's constant jokes. She's a fantastic straight man, straight woman. She she's also a badass. She has all of these moves. I mean, clearly the part where she does flips, there's somebody else standing in for her. But she's tough and she fights off all of these guys in in the biker house. She is wise. Um, yeah, she's just she's fantastic. And I wish that there had been a whole series about her as this crime solving, ass kicking, you know, lady back in the 80s, it would have been such so great to have that kind of female role model. Instead, mysteriously, without explanation, she falls in love with Eddie Murphy's character and wants to marry him. And, and that's another thing that when you're a kid, you're told these jokes are funny, and you sort of accept them. And you're told this is what love is, and you kind of accept it. So for me, the message I took away, which may have been reflected in my dating life, was that, you know, if someone's funny, and agrees to do stuff with you reluctantly, that's what love is? Because I didn't even realize until we were rewatching it last night that she outright has sex with him to get him to go to Nepal with her. Later, though, she says that she didn't. She says that she didn't. She says, I didn't sleep with you because, you know, to get you to do this. I slept with you because I love you. Which then raises the question, why Why does she love him? I mean, I know that we all fall in love for weird reasons sometimes, but I just don't see chemistry in their, in their characters or really that, I don't know, she doesn't, he, he doesn't reveal much of himself to the audience. So how can she see anything? And I can't tell if it's stuff they cut because after the fact, Eddie Murphy talked about how much the movie was cut down from what he agreed to do. Eddie Murphy also agreed uh, or also publicly stated that this movie is a piece of shit. It's in Wikipedia. Clearly, he just did not care. Um, What's interesting to me is that it doesn't allow anyone else to be funny. Yeah. With the exception of Victor Wong as the old man, the old priest that they have to face off with. And as a kid... It was the scene I remembered because, you know, anyone cusses. It's the greatest thing in the universe to us I when we're like, younger than 10. I feel like the drinking movie for the golden child is every time someone says the word ass, you do a shot. You might be dead by the end of the movie, though. Uh, but, yeah, he makes a, bu- a bunch of fart jokes and, um, you know, says things like monkey breath, puke face. Perfect for kids. And I, I mean that. Like, that's the kind of thing if you're, like, you know, between the ages of 9 and 12, like, you're all about that. And what and a good comparable movie came out same year. In fact, three of the same actors are in both movies. Is uh, Big Trouble in Little China? Ah, now that's one of Roth's favorite movies. I admit I didn't see that movie until uh, a few years ago. But <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I can and, see I can see the connection between the two. They'd be a, a good uh, you know double feature pairing. But uh, not to go too much into it. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Obviously, but the. It prov- provides a much different attitude of a foreigner in relation to another culture. In this place, mm. it's an American, a very John Wayne, meat and potatoes type of guy going up against a bunch of Chinese mystical warriors as opposed to Tibetan and Buddhist wizards and such. But the whole attitude of the movie is he's in over his head and he does not know what he's talking about and everyone else does, but it allows all the other characters' competence, uh, agency, a sense of humor, so that they feel comparatively like strong characters and a threat. Whereas Charles Dance never feels like a threat because he never does anything as himself. He's just a stop motion character that fights him at the end. And that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. A couple of things. So the two things that I want to talk about at this point, one is that I want to delve a little bit further into the main villain of this movie. And then I want to start talking with Ralph about, is this movie salvageable? Should we keep it on the shelf? Uh, if you haven't seen it, should you see it? If you liked it as a kid, sh- should you rewatch it? So, 
First, let's talk a little bit about Sardonomspar, which, as Roth described, most people know as... Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he's got the same sort of carriage in this movie, albeit uh, to a lesser degree, you know, big, broad shoulders. He wears this sassy leather cape. Um, he's, he's creepy. He's cre- just creepy enough to be, I think, a good contrast to Eddie Murphy's constant wisecracking. He's very evil and very scary. I remember this movie scaring the crap out of me because it comes when you don't expect it. Like when Eddie Murphy is looking for Cheryl Mosley and there's this bowl of oatmeal and he starts stirring it and suddenly blood comes out from it. Ah! Oh my God, I'm still freaked out about it. Yo, I couldn't eat oatmeal for a long time after seeing this. And then when Nusbar is you know, sitting, meditating, which may, uh, which may explain part of my aversion to yoga. He's suddenly, he's suddenly transported to hell and Dr. Claw, for all of you former Inspector Gadget fans, Dr. Claw is telling him what to do as he's sitting in hell. That was trippy. That was creepy. And as a kid, you know, as an adult, I'm thinking, what, how, why? And as a kid, you were just like, wow. So, um, yeah. And then at the end, he becomes this incredibly, uh, sort of icky, weird demon who chases Eddie Murphy uh, during the daytime. I feel like the scene would have been done better at night, but Ralph pointed out that perhaps Mr. Murphy's schedule did not allow that. So, and and the, obviously the special effects look super dated now. At the time, they were state of the art. So I think his character is well done. The only thing I don't like about his character is he doesn't pronounce the letter J, and I feel like there's a story there. So full disclosure. I am a writer. I have uh, written a trilogy of young adult novels. So I am one of those people who I want to know the why. I want to know why this character has some specific uh, affectation. You don't have to go super into it, but I feel like there's a story there that, you know, again, maybe that's on the editing room floor. Well, apparently the uh, the novelization has all of our answers for us. If we Shut genuinely up. wanted to go Shut back. Shut up. Was it popular? I have no idea. Okay. There was a novel back then. There was a novelization for, for everything. everything. That's true. I totally agree with you on that. He, first of all, he is really well dressed. I like his outfit in mm-hmm. it a lot, mm-hmm. and he and he has the right attitude of being formidable. He just doesn't do much. Yeah. He pretty much just stands around and then occasionally he makes an arm gesture. To, he talks to Satan. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's pretty big. Well, that is, well that was the strong moment for me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, folks, Doctor Claw is not actually in the movie. It's Frank Welker, the voice of. Dr. Claw. Oh, dang. Sorry. <laughs> in case people suddenly wonder why he's not in there. But I'm totally with you because that scene, that was like, I have like three or four scenes that stick in my head and that yeah. was one of them. Yeah, you did not want to be in the bathroom when that scene came on because that was that that was a wake-up call <laughs> for the movie. But, um, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah. he's clearly the Darth Vader, but all he does is simply state stuff. He's He poses. No, he kills. He kills uh, Tommy, what's his name, halfway through for being weak or ineffective in some way. He transforms from a rat into Sado Nusbar, kills him, and then transforms back again. Also a wake-up call. Also very unexpected and very creepy. Even though it's following like this huge kung fu battle, like the fact that somebody actually dies and the whole like rat transformation, yeah, as a kid, yeah, that made an impact on you. And I think that it definitely fits in that sort of mid-80s sort of scary action adventure, mm-hmm. you know, Raiders, Temple of Doom. Even Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Large Marge. Yeah, it just sort of comes out of left field and you're like, ah! On the plus side, we did get that great song lyric off of his name, though. <sighs> I did want to talk about this very briefly. So two things. Okay, I 
would not have rewatched The Golden Child. I would probably not even have remembered it if it wasn't for two things. One is in the album Late Registration, Kanye mentioned Sweet Brother Noopsy in the song Gone. And when I heard that, I knew that name, but I couldn't place it. And uh, yeah, that, so that stuck with me. But again, like, you know, I spent maybe five seconds thinking, what was Noopsy from? And then, then, a few years ago, I have friends who went to Nepal and they came back and they installed a prayer wheel on their wall. I went over to their house and as soon as I saw it, I remembered the iconic scene from the movie. And I guess it had happened enough times where my friend recognized my expression and he said, just do it. And I was like, do what? And he was like, I know what you're thinking. Everyone thinks that. And my response was, wait, other people know about this movie? And again, because it was on constant <laughs> rotation at HBO, uh, we all saw it. And again, the inspiration for this podcast. So I did. I went up to the prayer wheel and I am both proud and horrified to report that I did the, ah, 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 want the knife. I want the knife, please. And it was glorious. These are the reasons I'm married to her. So a lot of us have seen this movie. I'm not sure if anyone has rewatched it as many times as I have. And ultimately, what do you think, Ralph? Like, is this something... I know that you do not intend to see it again, probably because I've made you watch it so many times in the past <laughs> few weeks. Um, just uh, basically what happens with us is whenever we revisit an old movie... She likes to uh, basically revisit it a few times, sort of soak in it some. I like to settle in it, you know, put it around me like a weighted blanket. And um, which she just bought me, thank you very much. Happy birthday! It's I'm usually good after about a time, like, and that's it. I'm done. I'm like, I'm on on to the next one. Mm-hmm. The movie's not distinctive enough for me to be a strong revisitor because when it comes down to it, there's first the problem of everything's rotating around him mm-hmm. in terms of as a comic performer. But it's also that, uh, sad to say, the movie is not not very visually compelling. It, it feels very TV movie-ish mm-hmm. when it feels like what I was used to back then, that was sort of the gold standard, was Spielberg action, which was like... It's pretty high bar, though. I'm a kid. I'm not exactly having very acute taste there. I just felt like the action was very lower tier mm-hmm. compared to the neater action movies I had seen at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of felt like, oh, here's a comic actor. He can't really fight, so we're going to cut around it. And I didn't understand what that meant at the time, but it, it feels like that TV movie type of action. Yeah. And something I didn't realize until yesterday was... The movie, in theory, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's for kids, but it's clearly more geared toward younger audiences. And there aren't that many young people in it. Obviously, there's the golden child and Key, the female lead is, is, I mean, what was she, like 18 when she made this movie? (laughs) She looks older, but, you know, clearly she's young-ish. Everyone else is so much older, which sort of gives you that fun of like, oh, I'm watching a grown-up movie, but there are still ass jokes in it. But, um... Yeah, I started thinking about, if I start talking about all the inconsistencies or the weird little details in this movie that that didn't make sense, we're going to be here for a while and nobody probably cares. I do just want to say that I'm still amused years later that this biker gang holed up in this house who are clearly terrible people. I mean, they they had a woman and and sold her uh, into slavery uh, as part of a deal with the devil. They're watching a rat video on TV. They have hair metal on in the background, and it just cracked me up. Hi there. The band is Rat, R-A-T-T, and the song is Body Talk, just in case you wanted to find it. 
Yes, they're clearly very dangerous and very scary. And they sold her for like, was it like not much money or beer and chow mein? Yeah, just uh, for food. Um, Again, like shorthand of like, these are very bad people. The point I'm trying to get at now is, should you revisit it? I think if you found if you were fond of it as a child, it's worth a rewatch. I'm not sure I'd pick up the DVD. I mean, it's worth a rewatch simply to see like, why why did you love it? Did you find it funny? Did you find it exciting? The truth is, you're you're probably not going to find it still as funny or as exciting. The one thing, the, the, so I keep it around, yes, for nostalgia reasons, but also there's one scene in it that I keep coming back to as a writer, because I'm intrigued about, is it meaningful for me as part of the creator's intention, or is it just, it happened to become meaningful for me? The scene where Chandler has a dream, this creepy ass mm-hmm. dream, where Saru Nuspa carves something into his arm, is so eerie to me. There's no music in it, and it's this pretty room, but like there's red light behind the windows. It's, it's just quietly disturbing. And I had a lot of nightmares like that as a kid where it's just quietly disturbing and then there will be this audience that applauds, but then he gets like seriously hurt and almost killed. I don't know. I, I find that scene really compelling and I wish the whole movie had had more of that tone of, of like uh, Saru Nuspar himself being quietly creepy and evil and not overwhelming about it. But yeah. that was the that's the one moment in the movie where he gets to cut through Chandler's defenses because mm-hmm. he actively hurts him. He he gives him the scar on the arm like mm-hmm. you'll remember this. Yeah. And then there's that really good moment where when when uh, Chandler escapes and then he finds Key, he finds key. and then he's by the you know there's that shot where he's by the uh, applause sign and yeah. he's like he's aware of the construction of this dream and his attitude is like this is not really bothering me in the end. Yep. Yep. And that's that one moment where I'm going like. Ooh, this guy feels like an actual threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also Murphy's antics weren't just in this giant vacuum where they ended up filling everything up. You know, the audience was applauding. Like he had jokes, he had punchlines, and it sort of like stopped. And then the evil came back. Not to mention the whole, I thought this was fantastic. In the previous scene in the biker's house, Key just kicks ass. She takes everybody down. She has to rescue Murphy because he's tied up. There is one scene where she's wearing all white and a water pipe sprays her down. I was annoyed by that. But, you know, obviously, again, the boys are going to be like, woo. And then in Murphy's dream... She's in a leather bustier and she's only tied up by toilet paper. So he can sort of regain that sense of of uh, extreme masculinity of being able to rescue her. And she's super hot and it's super easy. So I thought that was funny. Obviously, it's not really it, it's kind of played up for a joke, but I found that funny. I don't have too much to add off of what you're saying. Yeah, because I think. Most movies like this, if we're coming back to any movie on this podcast, there is always a curiosity factor that I'm going to probably say, yeah, check this out. Because it's mm-hmm. stick, it stuck with us for some degree over all these years. Yeah. and To the point where if I see a, a prayer wheel, I was inspired to uh, to do something that I'm sure is, is very culturally offensive. And I, I do apologize for that. It was in a safe space in my friend's home. Um, but yeah, it was the first thing I thought of, which is sad. Like, you know, I, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't see a religious artifact and my first inspiration is to make a joke from an 80s movie. I should have been exposed to more things as a kid that would make me feel more reverential toward it. But that's my problem. I think looking back now at a at a time when we have stuff like Black Panther and such, mm. one thing that's good to remember... God, I love that movie. We, it's a, it's a beloved... Huge fans of it, yeah. And what I think that's really good to look back at it now is that Eddie Murphy really was the first comedic action star. Now, we had mm-hmm. Richard Pryor right beforehand, mm-hmm. and we had Sidney Poitier, then we had Exploitation Stars, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the crossover biggest Appeal. star in the world that Murphy had. The and best man in the world. 
I, I can say sort of after the fact, I wish he had uh, done more because I think he's one of the most supremely talented. naturally talented. Because the whole movie, it feels like he's improvising. Yeah. And to the detriment of a lot of the scenes, because yeah. he'll undercut stuff. Like, first scene with Key, she brings him a prayer scroll. and He, he pretends it's a joint. And I mean, you know, Rav and I, we were like, what, is, what is joint? We do not know. We are like nine or ten. And it's... And then he'll just sort of take the joke and ramble with it a little bit. And it sort of felt like, ah, he did a joke and then they didn't know how to, they just sort of let it play out rather than cut it out fast and go back to the plot proper. And I think a great example of where this works perfectly is a movie like Ghostbusters. Because, because again, that was the second biggest hit of the year of Beverly Hills Cop. And while that similarly was a very rushed project... It had a very clean structure, and they knew where the jokes went. So whenever they improvised stuff, it fit in a very specific box. So it never overwhelmed the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And they let the heroes be afraid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they let all of the heroes and all the supporting characters get a joke in. Yeah, and it was less of you're the chosen one and more you got this feeling that these were like scrappy heroes who didn't they didn't set out to save the world. They just set out to capitalize off of other people's fear. And this, so the stakes were very different. Honestly, looking back at The Golden Child, I keep rewatching it because I think I see on some level in it the movie that I wish it was. Mm-hmm. The movie that it could have been with a little bit more structure, a little bit more sort of taming of Murphy's constant joke dropping. I think it could have been a really fantastic project and it could have been a phenomenal fish out of water comedy and, and you know, kids, kids sort of kind of older kids movie. Um, yeah, and it's it's just too bad that it wasn't. Yeah, I would say give it a sh- give it a watch if you're curious. Uh, if you're not, and you know, don't lose any sleep over it. There are some racist elements in it. I mean, when you come down to it, a lot of his jokes are based on making fun of people speaking a different language, or you know, cheap shots like a woman constantly offering him unpalatable-looking food while speaking a different language, or an elderly man just talking and talking and talking in a language you don't understand and then laughing. So stuff like that obviously does not hold up well. There is near the beginning a, a joke about someone's quote unquote sex change that does not hold up well. And unfortunately, that's, you know, you're going to find that in a lot of comedies, uh, pretty, even now. It's So just, you know, be aware of that. Yeah, it'll always have a, a weird space in my heart for, you know, specific reasons and specific scenes, but not sure I would recommend. You know, I could, I'm not sure I could go to work and be like, hey, I think all of you should rent this movie. It was fantastic. You'll enjoy it. It's something specific from my childhood. And there are parts of it that I'll save and parts of it that I wish I could recycle. Yeah, because for me, even back then, it was the lazy Sunday movie. Yeah. It, it yeah. was not the one I put out a lot of effort for. Or And, yeah. and when it went out of my life, when it, when it was no longer on cable, mm-hmm. I didn't seek it out. And I think that's usually usually the sign of whether or not you try to revisit it much because it's just the fragments of little things i remember like i remember the whole bit where he drops the quarter oh sorry go ahead but the dancing dancing soda can to putting on the ritz which i mean how would a tibetan child know that song but who cares it's cute it's funny it's well done i actually really like that scene and the whole bit where he pulls out the quarter and drops it into the infinite void Uh. and he waits for it and he just waits for it there's no ground and, yeah. and it's those little beats that you go, oh, that's the movie I, I really, really wanted to see. Yeah. And when you're a kid, you know, you can just sort of pretend it's that movie for a while. Kids are, literally are the most forgiving audiences, I would say. It allowed us to see stuff and uh, experience content we wouldn't, if we were grown up, we would probably turn it off a lot 
not earlier. Yeah, and it taught me not necessarily how to craft a good joke on the spot, but that being funny is a is a good salve sometimes when you're in a difficult situation, that humor is the ultimate can be the ultimate tension releaser. You know, I'm, I am I will throw this movie on when I'm knitting. Uh, I So I knit and I watch birds because I know how to party. You know, it's again, it's nice to have one in the background. It's nice to have the familiar dialogue. But man, I can't imagine watching it again anytime too soon. But yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, we look forward to cleaning out our childhood closets with you sometime again soon. What the Kids Were Watching has been produced and hosted by Sada Ruiz and Rafael Ruiz. Theme music provided by Pete Seibert. For more information on our podcast and to read the companion blog, well, really more of a cartoon sidekick, you can go to whatthekidswerewatching.com. You can also find us on social media. Look for What the Kids Were Watching on Facebook, What the Kids Were Watching on Instagram, and What the Kids Were on Twitter. What the Kids Were Watching, copyright 2020, RARWorks, LLC.